don't think I planned that very well. That song <clears throat> changed my life in many ways about 35 years ago. I thought it fit so well into Romans 11, and it does. But I haven't heard it for years. And Nico's just too good. And uh, what a great, great song. Let's pray. Pastor Doug, will you come up and pray for us, please? Father, we do pray that we will always be moved by these great realities. It's possible to know them at a certain level in our heads, and we just want to move them more and more deeply into our hearts. And so as we hear from your word again, and Paul goes down deep into the realities of your purposes, some of them that mystify us, may we end up where he ends up with doxology and praise, the kind of praise that we just heard sung. Father, may we know the greatness of your grace, the greatness of your holiness, your wisdom and power. May we confess the glory of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. A defeated French admiral greeted the victorious admiral of the British fleet, Horatio Nelson. They are on the deck of Nelson's ship, and the humiliated admiral reached out his hand in congratulations, and Nelson refused it. He said to him, Sir, your sword first. You know, before we can sue for peace with God, we must lay down our sword. And that's what Israel was not willing to do when we come to Romans chapter 11, for they had in mass, almost the whole nation, rejected the Lord Jesus Christ as God's Messiah and their Savior. They went about trying to establish their own righteousness, and because of that, God gave them over to the hardness of their heart. And that's where we find them. But in God's uh, mysterious providence, during that time of their rebellion, there was an outreach to the Gentiles of the gospel. The gospel came to them in power, and many were saved. And Paul wanted to use the salvation of the Gentiles as a means to bring envy to the Jews. That God Almighty, who had given them so many privileges, had now had turned his back on them, as it were, to reach out to the Gentiles. But that envy to the Jews was designed to draw them back to Christ. Hasn't yet in a great number, but Romans 11 says it will. And this is all part of that amazing mystery. So with our Bibles, we want to look at God's mystery, Romans chapter 11, verse 25. I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, 
brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. It's interesting that they were conceited when they saw that Israel was set aside, that the branches were broken off and they were grafted in, both in verse 18 and verse 20. And now again in verse 25, you have the idea of boasting or arrogance or conceit. He says, you don't understand the mystery if you're conceited. I don't want you to be conceited and I don't want you to be ignorant of the mystery that Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the fullness or the full number of the Gentiles has come in. The Apostle Paul loved the word mystery, used it well over 20 times, to describe a plan that God had designed but for the ages had been hidden until Christ came and the gospel was made known. In that day, in Paul's day, there were many mystery religions and everyone was ignorant of the secret unless you were one of the initiated, unless you were inducted into that particular secret group, and then you could know the secret. Oh, but God's mystery is so different. Hidden for the ages, but yes, now made known to everyone, revealed in the person of Christ. And Paul says, I don't want you to be ignorant. The Bible talks about several different mysteries or aspects to this mystery. For instance, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 6, his mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and they share together in the promise of Christ. No one had ever conceived of that taking place. Or Colossians chapter 1 tells us in verse 27, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which simply is this, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So Christ is the mystery, and it's called the mystery of God in Colossians chapter 2. This mystery, then, is something that God wants people to understand. And to understand that it brings no conceit. It is all by grace. Ignorance breeds conceit. Truth is the remedy. And when we understand the truth about ourselves and that salvation is not something that we earn, but something that we receive as a gift, when we understand that we are sinners and that the only thing we deserve is condemnation, then we're humbled and we lay down our sword of rebellion and by faith embrace the wonderful Savior that God has given to us. So this mystery, according to verse 25, has three parts to it. The hardening of Israel, then the faith going out to the Gentiles, and this faith going out to the Gentiles will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So Israel, because of their own stubbornness, was, they were given over to their pride. They're now spiritually insensitive, hard to the gospel. And yet the Gentiles came in and they will keep coming in until the fullness of their number has been determined. That's an interesting statement. In Luke's gospel, chapter 21, Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles is 
fulfilled. So we're living in that era right now where Israel rejects Christ. The Gentiles are coming to Christ. Jerusalem is trodden underfoot by the Gentiles and under its control to some degree. But Romans 11 says that's all going to change someday. It's interesting when you, when the word of God gives us prophecy, God does not always give us all the details. Most of the details will only be learned by the event itself. And the way we understand that is to look back at prophecy before. And there were many aspects of the prophecy we didn't understand until the event took place. So why do we spend all of our time trying to answer the unanswerable? God has told us what he's going to do without the details of how and when. Sometimes he does, but often he doesn't. And yet people have built their ministry on answering what God hasn't answered about the future. Let's be careful we don't fall into that trap. Often when you fall into that trap, prophecy conferences become far more popular than conferences on the nature and the character and the work of Christ. And it should be the other way around, right? Thank you, Scott. And that's, that's what Paul is telling us here. Something's going to happen, but he doesn't give us all of the details. And this is the amazing thing. Yeah, they're hardened in part. It's not a final hardening. It's temporary. But verse 26 says, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. It's quite an astounding statement. I've been gathering together some quotations. Pastor Doug sent a few more to me this week. Uh, of some of those individuals that we think of as being great theologians and stalwarts of the faith who are responding to this little verse in Romans 11. People like Charles Spurgeon who said, you cannot read the Bible without seeing clearly that there is to be an actual restoration of the children of Israel. If there is anything promised in the Bible, this is it. Or Jonathan Edwards, nothing is more clearly foretold than the national conversion of the Jews in Romans chapter 11. And another favorite of mine, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, Romans 11 speaks of a great spiritual return among the Jews before the end of time. So yet future. Right now they're turning away, but someday they will turning to by the grace of God. Not every single Israelite. But the group as a whole, the word all is not small, but emphasizes a great majority in its fullness, for the Bible talks about the fullness of the Gentiles as well as talking about the fullness of the Jews. And what kind of salvation is it? Well, the next few scriptures tell us, actually verse 26 says a deliverer will come from Zion, quoting from Isaiah 59. And that's referring to the first coming of Christ. It will be Messiah, the deliverer and the king. And what will he do? He will turn godlessness away from Jacob. Probably a hint to Isaiah 27. And not only that, verse 27, 
in our text says, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. The new covenant given to us in Jeremiah 31. So he will send his deliverer. He will turn wickedness away from Jacob, from Israel, and he will establish the covenant, the promise of forgiveness of sins. That's the kind of salvation that will come to the nation of Israel. And we long for that day. This is the salvation that Paul prayed for in chapter 10, verse 1. This is the salvation he hoped to woo the Israelites to with envy. This is the salvation that the Gentiles had already embraced. This is the salvation that will one day take over the world by God's amazing grace. So right now we're sharing the gospel with people who often don't want to hear it. You know, we take our trips to Israel and they love to have us there. They love for us to spend our American money wherever we go. But they do not love for us to stop and start a church, begin to reach out to the people because they're not for Jesus. In fact, one of the forms of anti-Semitism that the Jews see everywhere is Christian missionary activity. Isn't that interesting? So anyhow, the, the Bible tells us some things that are going to happen, but doesn't give us all the details. We know it's coming in the end. We know it's going to happen to Israel. And for that, we can be encouraged. And that's why Paul wants to say, after all these chapters of dealing with man's sin and presenting the gospel in Christ and then showing that Israel is turned away, he wants us to know that God will win in the end and we can be filled with hope. He says in verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned right now, the Jews are your enemies. But as far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. So they are your enemies right now, but they are God's beloved. It almost seems a bit contradictory as he has turned away from them because of their sin and rebellion, but will turn back to them in the last days. Because remember this, verse 29, the gifts and calling of God are without repentance or irrevocable. That's why when you truly receive salvation from God, you can never lose it because the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. The context here is his promises made to Israel in Jeremiah 31. The gifts given to the nation and the calling of Israel being his people. He'll never turn back on that. They may strongly reject and even violently oppose the gospel right now, but they are beloved because of the patriarchs, the root of the tree, and one day those branches will be grafted back in that have been broken off. The present picture is not the final story, and we need to be encouraged about that. By the way, you can put every promise of God next to verse 29. The promises of God, the gifts of God, the callings of God, he never changes his mind. Numbers 23, 19. God is not a man that he should repent or that he should lie. He's not a man that he should lie. No, the son of man that he should repent 
Has he said and will he not do it? Has he spoken and will he not make it good? Rhetorical questions with an obvious answer. When God makes a promise, he always fulfills it. And yet you and I, blessed with an abundance of promises, are so weak in embracing them and living upon them and being encouraged by them. God chose Israel and he doesn't change his mind and he continues to pursue them. That's what we need to remember. And his promises to us are yea and amen, which means so be it, it's done, it's accomplished. And that's the promises of God. So that's the mystery. It's really the same thing Paul's been talking about in the whole chapter. He just uses the term mystery about Israel turning away and the Gentiles turning to and Israel becoming envious and one day because of that turning back to the Lord in great numbers. But now he goes from this idea of mystery to mercy. The mercy of God. And we'll see that mentioned several times in the next few verses. Look at verse 30. And this is a recapping of what he's already said. Just as you were once disobedient to God, speaking about the Gentiles, but now have received mercy because of Israel's disobedience, so they have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may receive mercy. They get jealous. And come back. You say, Paul's been saying the same thing over and over and over again. Yeah, about four times. Says it in a slightly different way. And why do we repeat something to our children instead of just saying it once? Why does God repeat something to us <laughs> over? And over again. Yeah, it's because we're, we don't get it. Or we're soon to forget it. And God says, let me remind you. Repetition in scripture is never because God couldn't think what to say next. And he wanted to fill in a few chapters. Like you and I writing a term paper in college. Lacking content, but I need ten pages. So here it goes again. Or, or much like a... Um, a radio broadcaster who has a talk show host for or is a talk show host for three hours. Ever you listen to them say the same thing over and over, over again? But they want you to get it. God wants us to get His mystery and His mercy. Mercy has come to us. What is mercy? God holding back what we truly deserve. And I love how it all comes together in verse. 32. This is one of those summary verses. Verse 32. For God has bound everyone, Jew and Gentile, over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on everyone. Now this is an amazing aspect of the plan of God. Think of it. Go all the way back to the garden. And some of you maybe have thought it's not fair for one person, Adam, to represent the whole human race. I mean, we should have at least picked someone better. Or if I had been the partner of Eve, we'd be in Eden still, says the words of Camelot from the French proud warrior, Lancelot. 
Yeah, we think, you know, we would have done a better job. But no, God knew we'd all do the same thing. So in mercy, he let one sin for all so that one could die for all. Isn't that beautiful? And he bounds us all under sin so that the promise, one promise of grace is given to all, Jew or Gentile. He says the same thing in Galatians chapter 6, or I should say, uh, excuse me, Galatians 3, 22, uses the same word. But the scripture has declared all under sin. The word bound in verse 32 of Romans, the word under in Galatians 3, same word. It's to be confined to a dungeon. It's as though you are incarcerated under something. You're confined with no possibility of escape unless mercy releases you. In fact, the same word is used in Galatians 3.23 that talks about the law being our custodian. The law shuts us up. And we have no way out. And that's beautiful in the sense that God in mercy sends his one only begotten son to die in our place. And simple but genuine faith in him brings life and forgiveness forever. That's the glory of the gospel. Now some people look at verse 22 and they come up with universal ideas. Well, if everyone is bound in sin, then the same everyone will be saved by mercy. And they began to think that God is a universalist, that in the end, everyone will be saved. But that's not the case. You can't rip a verse out of its context. And if you've been studying the context of Romans, you know that there is introduced in the first chapter the wrath of God. And mentioned again in chapter 2, the anger of God against sin. 1 Corinthians 15 says something very similar. As in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. That sounds like universalism until you understand it's all who are in Adam die and it's all who are in Christ who are made alive. Not everyone's in Christ. It's by faith. And so while everyone is bound over to disobedience and the penalty of sin... That's so everyone can receive mercy if they'll but turn from their sin, lay down their sword, and embrace Christ as king. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile in sin. There's no distinction between Jew and Gentile in salvation. What a beautiful thing. Fairness from man's perspective causes us to feel that God is anything but just. Fairness from God's perspective shows us that he is perfectly good and always right. So we go from the mystery to the mercy and then finally we come to the majesty. Here we are coming to the end of a, an important section in the book of Romans the end of chapter 11, from chapter 12 on, uh, there are many practical admonitions based on what has been discussed, the gospel. The first 11 chapters is a summary of that wonderful gospel, our need of it. God sending his son to provide it for us. The dynamics of when we believe, 
uh, how that changes us and what about Israel. But now it comes to a great doxology that we call the majesty of God. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. If that is a little bit different than the translation you have on your lap, it's because it is a little bit different. There, there is a bit of a struggle to try to understand in that first verse whether you're talking about one truth, all the riches about together the wisdom and knowledge of God. Or some people see it as two truths. Oh, the wealth and riches of God. And also the wonderful wisdom and knowledge of God. So two truths. I think it's a New Living Translation that puts it this way. It's almost like three truths. Oh, the depths of the riches. And the wisdom. And the knowledge of God. I'm not exactly sure which is right, but it doesn't make any difference. The idea of riches speaks of an abundance. The Bible talks about the riches of his kindness, Romans 2. The riches of his glory, Romans 9. The riches of his grace, Ephesians 1. The riches, the boundless riches in Christ, Ephesians 3. We could go on with a wonderful series about the riches of God in Christ Jesus. They are inexhaustible. And they are immense. And again, to our shame, we don't tap into the riches that God provides for us. His judgments are unsearchable. The judgments, what he thinks, what he decides. His paths untraceable. What he does, where he goes, how he interacts with men unsearchable and inscrutable and it has to be because he's infinite and we cannot we cannot plumb the depths of the character of God and that's why we must be lost in wonder love and praise we need to be knocked back on our heels and just say this is beyond us well beyond us at the basis of worship is wonder at the immensity of God and his amazing grace and mercy. Verse 33 is somewhat of the New Testament equivalent of Isaiah 55. My ways are not your ways. My thoughts are not your ways. Or your, my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are higher than yours. You can't grasp them all. I've revealed to you something that you can hang on to, but there's so much more. The wisdom of God is hidden in the person of Christ and displayed on the cross of Christ. But the wisdom of God is greater than that. John Stott said, if his wisdom plans salvation, then it's his wealth that bestows salvation. These amazing verses are designed to cause us to pause in wonder and to be lost in God. Have you ever climbed, like, somewhere in the Rockies? 
to an elevation where you had a beautiful vista, maybe of a lake and the snow-covered mountains and the pine trees. Have you ever done that? And it's a bit of a climb and you're somewhat out of breath and exhausted, but when you stop, it's well worth it. And if you take it in, sometimes you don't know what to say because it's so beautiful. If that's never happened to you, go hiking this summer. Find a place. And if you're not very emotional, go with someone who might be even a little more sensitive than you. Because you may say, yeah, I see a lake. I see, yeah, I see some trees. I see some snow. Let's go back down for lunch. Oh, but take in the view. Take in the view. The great commentator in the book of Romans, Godet, was from Switzerland. And so he put it this way. The apostle Paul turns and contemplates after this amazing climb. The depths are at his feet. He takes in all that lay before him. Analysis and argument must give way to adoration. And it's all about the greatness of Almighty God. So then he goes to rhetorical questions, verse 34. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor? Or who has ever given to God that he should repay him? Now, no one knows the mind of the Lord completely because he's infinite, we're finite. And therefore, who could give him wisdom that he does not possess? Who could play the role of counselor? And who has ever first given to God? The idea of first here is in this word given. Who has ever first given to God that God should be his debtor? Rhetorical questions have obvious answers, right? Right. Now think of it this way. The very first verse talked about the riches, the wisdom, and knowledge of God, right? Look at these rhetorical questions. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Knowledge. Who has been his counselor to give him advice? Wisdom. And who has ever given to God that he needs to pay it back? Riches. Because he has it all. In the end, our worship of God should come so deeply from our heart, not because we know everything about him, but precisely because we don't. Patrick Faber said, what is darkness in my intellect is sunshine to my heart. And when I sing some of these great hymns, I realize that his favor to me is not merited, but purely of his grace. And the forgiveness of my sins is not earned, but given to me out of his love. And so in the very last verse of chapter 11, you have this wonderful, for from him and through him and to him, or for him, are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. That last verse, verse 36. If we ask where, if we ask how, if we ask why, the answer is simply God. He is the source, he is the means, 
and he is the goal. Or as someone else put it, he is the author, the agent, and the aim of everything. It's not you, by the way. That's why pride is so offensive because pride takes the place of God and we begin to strut about the world as though we own it. We begin to blaspheme and, and take the name of God in vain and hold back trust from him as though there were no dependence, no need of dependence from us upon him. But pride and conceit and arrogance is so sinful. All sin is self in some form. But God's the author. He starts it all. He's the agent. He makes it happen. And he's the goal. It's all for his glory. For from him and through him and to him is everything. And that's why we need to say glory to God forever. He is the Alpha and Omega and every letter in between. I like the way the book of Romans ends. In chapter 1, I am the Alpha and Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. That's the first chapter of the book of the Revelation. In the last chapter of the book of the Revelation, the final book of the Bible, chapter 22, 13, I am the Alpha and Omega, the first, the last, the beginning, and the end. Think about it this way. Theology is our belief about God. Doxology is our worship of God. And the two should never be divided you cannot have doxology without theology. If all you have is theology, it's cold and dry. If all you have is doxology, it's weak and sentimental. All true worship responds to the self-revelation of God in Christ, found in the scriptures. That's the source of it all. We have no knowledge apart from the word. But the word lifts us up so high that we lose our footing and we begin to praise him. Bishop Handley Mould put it this way. We must be equally aware of undevotional theology and then of untheological devotion. Our place is on our face before him. Lost in wonder, love, and praise. And I love Chapter 12, verse 1. We're not going to get into it very far, but just notice it. By the mercies of God, I compel you to surrender. That's what Paul says. What are the mercies of God? The first 11 chapters of Romans. What a great way to describe it. Paul puts it this way in 1 Timothy 1, verse 17. Now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, to the only wise God, or to God alone who is wise, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul loved doxology, and I hope we do too. Because God is worthy of it. There's a praise chorus I think you know well. I'd love for us to sing. Join me in this. 
Thou art worthy. Let's stand. Thou art worthy. Amen. Amen. To receive glory. Sing with your heart. Glory and honor and power. For thou hast created, hast all things created. Amen. He is worthy. I invite you back this evening for our Equipper Seminar.